Once upon a time, in a land far away. I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. So great to have you here with us again for part two of the Tale of Tales, which we started in a previous episode. So if you haven't listened to that episode, part one, we would encourage you to go back and listen to that before listening to this one, because you'll be all kinds of confused since we're starting in the middle. But we will be telling, you know, complete tales that could kind of be taken out of context. But then we'll be talking about a lot of stuff that we talked about in the last episode. So listen to that one. Come back and listen to this one. And if you have, welcome. We're glad to continue this because it's been really fun. Yeah. And this is also related to our Snow White series. And so if you also want to know what's going on with the Snow White <laughs> series, yeah, check out those episodes too. But definitely to understand this episode the best, definitely go back and listen to the previous episode. Yeah, you can you can go and listen to the other Snow White episodes even after this one and it'll probably be okay. Yeah. But you'll be very confused if you haven't listened to part one of the Tale of Tales. That's true. So before we get into the tale... Some announcements. We are having a fifth Friday Fable Fest on September 29th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It is also going to be the full harvest moon that night, which makes it the biggest night, like the main night of the Mid-Autumn Moon Festival in Asia which we have done episodes about, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a wonderful night for us to get together and interact with some storytelling. So everybody be excited for that coming up. Yeah, that'll be fun. Always love getting to interact live. It adds like a different, interesting, fun element when we can get feedback in real time from the audience. And we learn things that we didn't know. And it kind of leads our own like, you know, discussion and thought process often ways that we never could have predicted because we don't know what new and fascinating things that we're going to learn. That's the beauty of community. One more thing before we go, we have a new review that we would like to share from Apple Podcasts. Ooh, I haven't seen this yet. It is a five-star review. Thank <gasps> you so much. Those are our favorites. <laughs> Simply titled, Awesome Podcast. I've enjoyed every episode and listened to some a couple of times over. Amazing content and great personalities that keep me listening. From Little Trophy Babe. Again, via Apple Podcasts. Oh, So nice. thank you, Little Trophy Babe, for listening. You're our Little Trophy Babe. <laughs> so just thank you very much, Little Trophy Babe. That was very kind of you. Thank you for leaving us a review. It really does help the podcast. Helps more people find our podcast and think that it's actually uh, good and worth listening to. <laughs> and I'm glad that you actually truly do think that. We try to read all of the reviews that we get, uh, all the good ones. We've read pretty much every <laughs> review because <laughs> they mostly are good. We've gotten yeah. lots of really, really great reviews. Love hearing from you, especially in that way. So if you want to leave us a review, uh, we will eventually uh, read it on the podcast. If it's on Apple Podcasts, uh, that's the only place that I've been able to find like written reviews. Yeah. Uh, but we do, we do on Spotify enjoy all of the star ratings too. 
Yeah. So if you want to find a, a nice, free, very low effort way to support the podcast, leaving us a review, whether you include written content or not, because we've gotten plenty of reviews on Apple Podcasts as well that did not have a written review along with it. Uh, we would appreciate that. Give us, you know, the five stars everywhere that uh, you're, you can listen to podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. And also, again, we're just so grateful for the people who have come back and listened to us after our, like, two-month-long hiatus. It was so beautiful to me that, like, we had taken, like, a two-month hiatus off and then right when we started, you know, posting stuff again, immediately, like the stuff was getting downloaded at like the same rate. And so I really appreciate that people are like waiting for our episodes to come out and eager to listen. We have a really great audience. Very loyal. Love you guys. Love you folks. It is good to call them folks, not just for the, you know, like the gender neutralness, but yeah, the folklore. I see what you did. Very clever. And I loved it. I'm a thinker. (laughs) That's kind of true. I think, I definitely think there's no guarantee as to the quality of those thoughts, but I do think a lot of them. (laughs) Quantity over quality. That's what I always say. (laughs) Yep. Yep. A minor announcement is that Jeff and I have been podcasting for four years. So happy anniversary to the Fairy Tellers podcast. Yay. We normally do like a Cinderella episode around this time of year, but we're saving our next Cinderella episode until our 100th episode, which we are getting closer and closer to recording. So you can... Be looking forward to that. It'll be kind of like a belated anniversary episode, but it's been four years and it's been a wild ride and we're loving it. Yeah. Ba, 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 ba. I'm loving we it. We are getting a cease and desist letter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. But now we've made it parody. So it's protected <laughs> under the First Amendment. So before we start the episode, uh, we do want to give some trigger warnings for the stories that we're about to be telling. Um, The biggest one is for racism. We said this at the beginning of the last episode for part one of these stories, but what we are doing with this episode is showing the racism that is presented in these tales around the black, white, and red of the tricolors. Specific to these tales, not inherent in all tales that have those colors, but we're having a conversation about these colors, how they are used in this cultural document, which is the tale of tales. And so this story has major themes of racism, which is actually part of the reason why we selected them, not because we enjoy racism, but because it's highlighting what we are talking about uh but be aware that it's it's not dog whistles it's very blatant and offensive yeah (laughs) it's very offensive so definitely trigger warning for that also fairy tale violence murder and i will say unborn infant death 
as well, which I know can be more triggering for people than simply just murder. And so I want to mention that mm-hmm. ahead of time because it's that's a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. So we do we do apologize for uh, things that Jean Baptiste Bessile said and did. Oh, he didn't do God. them. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what this freak was doing? But more than any of the other like fairy tale chroniclers that we have encountered on this podcast, like Jean-Baptiste de Basile, two things stick out in my mind. One, extreme violence. It's like the Tarantino of fairy tales. Yeah. Which Tarantino, I think that's an Italian name. Must be something with (laughs) Italy. I mean, the the Colosseum, gladiatorial games. (laughs) Once again, uh, trigger warning for racism. And... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then the other thing that I have come to appreciate about Jean-Baptiste Basile uh, more recently is like amazing strings of analogies and metaphors. Yeah. You'll, there'll be some in this episode that I'll make sure to do, but it's like, and it's not one, not two. It's like usually like five or six metaphors all in a row, just like building on each other to explain like one I, one idea. It's just beautiful. Yeah. We we love some classics, especially people who are masters of language. So this is part two. We've mentioned of our very first ever two-part episode. We usually try to make the episodes pretty self-contained so that you don't have to worry about if this is your first episode ever. But because of the frame narrative that goes around these tales, we had to have a part two episode so that we could include it all because... We wanted to make sure that while we were already focusing on tales inside of this narrative, and we'll see today in the tale that Jeff is telling why it was important to include the whole frame in what we were talking about. Uh, So we decided to just go for it, include the frame of the tale of tales. It would be too big to be one full episode, so we cut it into two. So again, please listen to the first episode first. I will give kind of a brief synopsis of the frame narrative because we're going to start off this episode in the middle of the frame narrative again before we go into a tale that Jeff will tell and then we'll close out the frame narrative. But last episode, we talked about black, red, and white and how those color words are usually the first color words that are created in a language. It's super fascinating that they've found their way into so many tales They're some of the most important colors in fairy tales, especially European fairy tales. We also touched on how colors don't have an inherent meaning. They're assigned meaning by cultures. It's really broad to say that like red means passion or even loss of innocence or white is purity. A lot of conversation has been had about how Snow White is white because she's pure and innocent. But the red of her lips or the red in her cheeks is like a sign of the passionate romance that's below the surface, or that it's a sign of her youth transitioning from a child into a woman when she's found by the prince. And that's okay. (laughs) Within some of the cultures that the story is being told in, maybe, yeah. Yeah, especially if the person who is the one telling the story is consciously like purposefully like thinking of those symbols that are present already in like their own culture that they're putting into it. So if there's evidence 
in the text or in the culture that created the tale that that is the case, that those are the meanings um, of those like colors, then yes, sure. Um, But we have to be careful that we don't read our own cultural values into the text or our own like cultural beliefs right now about those colors into the text, which is really hard. It's hard to put yourself not just in another culture's like mindset, if you're not part of it, but also a different time period. Because even if a person is from Italy in 2023, that doesn't mean that they were part of the same culture as the Italy in the 1500s that Giambattista Basile was talking to. So that being said, the story that Jeff is going to be retelling today is a really good example of the colors being used and the textual evidence pointing to some context for this meaning. So, and I was going to say, when he's telling his story, be paying attention when he's retelling the tale to what is black, what in the tale is white, and what is red. Just because we're going to be talking about it at the end of the episode, and it's kind of the thesis of the whole thing. (laughs) Um, Because obviously, you know, in the story that we told in the last episode, there was a person who was looking for somebody who had all those three elements in them as a person. And we pointed out in the last episode, none of these are tail types, are Snow White tail types. There's a Snow White tail type that is in the Tale of Tales. We briefly recapped it, but these tales are not Snow White tail types, but they include the elements kind of right at the beginning that the person that is looking for in like the main character of the story or like the the female uh, protagonist in the story. So very quick recap. Let's see how quickly I can recap <laughs> the framed very- the frame tale. I'm just picturing like. Very quick recap. Three hours later. <laughs> okay, now Jeff's going to get into his story. That's exactly like what it feels like. So, there was a girl. She never laughed, didn't know how to laugh. And her dad set up this fountain. This fountain had oil shot out of it. This old lady trips on the oil. No, she didn't trip on the oil. A kid broke this lady's vase. She Yeah, she went to get oil from the fountain yeah. so that she could use it to cook. She's like, hey, free oil. Free oil. Then slapstick comedy ensues. Like, she ends up showing somebody her lady bits as retaliation. And finally, the princess, whose name is Zoza, laughs for the first time, but she laughs at this old lady, and this old lady's like, how dare you laugh at me? Curses her that she'd only be able to fall in love with and marry a prince who was currently, like, in a magical sleep state inside of, like, a coffin next to a different fountain, which, again, oh, that kind of elements that seem very Snow White related. Mm -hmm. So... Zoza's like, oh no, what am I going to do? So she goes to three different hags and crags. And each of these three different hags and crags, they didn't call them hags and crags, but I am. Each one of them gave her a nut and told her, crack open this nut when you need it. So Zoza, she gets over to the fountain and there's this like pitcher outside of the fountain and it says, you have three days to fill up this pitcher full of your tears to have the prince like wake up. 
So she immediately starts crying and crying into this pot. It fills up with her tears almost the top, but there's just like a couple inches left that, you know, she needed to still fill. But she fell asleep, passed out. What she didn't know is that for the last two days, this one enslaved woman had uh, been told to come and get water from this fountain. And she had seen Zoza there crying into the pitcher, knew that she was trying to free the prince and that she most likely was going to succeed. So she was laying there waiting. When Zoza went to fall asleep, this woman, whose name is Lucia, takes the pitcher, finishes crying the last couple inches of tears into the pitcher. The prince wakes up. He sees Lucia, who, again, is a um, is a black woman. And he sees her and is like, well... The rules are the rules. You filled up the pitcher with tears, so now I'm going to marry you, even though we all know on our side she wasn't the one who filled it up most of the way with tears. Stolen valor. So (laughs) the two of them get married, like, immediately. The sound of them getting married is actually what woke Zoza up from her sleep. And she was like, oh, no, I missed out on being married to, like, this guy this is like the worst. She ends up buying a house that's like a, buying a house, renting a place. I don't know. Um, <laughs> across the street from the palace to where the guy, the prince, whose name is Tadio, looks out a window, sees her and falls in love with like just the way that she looks like as a person. Found her very attractive and was like, oh, wow, she's really beautiful. I need to stop looking out this window at her because this is going to make my wife, Lucia, mad at me. So, Zoza, not knowing what to do, cracks open a nut. It's a magical item. She cracks open another nut. It's another magical item. Cracks open the third. It's another magical item. All of these magical items end up being seen by the new princess, Lucia, who is already pregnant by this time with the Prince Tadio's baby. And so I don't know how much time had elapsed for them to know that she was like pregnant. So couple months, couple at, months least. at least. So one of these magical items has been kind of like cursed so that when Lucia gets it, she will have a craving for storytelling. And back then cravings, if pregnant women's cravings weren't met, it was believed that something bad would happen to the fetus. So since this woman was like, really craving storytelling, she invited, or Tadio invited 10 women to come to the palace grounds, eat a big feast every day, and then each tell a tale so that it was, what was it, 10 women telling a tale for five days, so 50 tales in all. And that's why this is the tale of tales. Yes. It's like a thousand and one nights kind of situation. Yep, indeed. So all those women go. None of those women who are telling the story are Zoza. It's like 10 women who all had something kind of like wrong with them. It was like funny because it was like diarrhea, Linda. (laughs) (laughs) We're like the names of these people. Yeah, like all very insulting uh, names. Yeah. Because it was like goiter Greta. And it was like, wow, don't be talking about her goiters. But anyway, goiter, it's just one. You can't have more than one goiter, can you? Because I don't know. it's in your throat. Anyway, we're getting off top. I think it's like a thyroid thing. Yeah. So maybe you could have it on like 
each side. Mm. Maybe. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. We're going to have to do I'd some. Google it. Yeah, but. we're going to have to do some goiter <laughs> research. Anyway, so every day, like they were telling the tales. And this is when, you know, Jeff retold one of the tales that was told called The Raven or The Crow. In past episodes, we've retold The Cinderella Cat. That was our very first Cinderella episode, our very first like storytelling episode that we did. Another story that they retold was Sun, Moon, and Talia, which is a Sleeping Beauty story. So lots of stories to be had in this. But that's where we have now caught ourselves up to how I'm going to start. So the morning of the fifth day, the birds were already reporting to the ambassador of the sun on all the <laughs> tricks and traps that had been prepared during the night when Prince Tadio and Princess Lucia delivered themselves bright and early to the usual place where, at a whistle, nine of the ten women arrived. So yeah, that's another thing Jean-Baptiste Bessile does is like have an overly poetic way to talk about how it's morning now <laughs> or it's nighttime now. <laughs> because instead of just being like, like the birds were chirping on the morning of the fifth day, he's like, they reporting to the ambassador of the sun. Like, all right. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. I love it. But Reel it's also it in, like, buddy. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy and they come down <laughs> stairs to meet up with these ladies like they normally do. And nine out of the 10 women were there. They were missing mm. the 10th woman. And <laughs> Diarrhea Linda was still <laughs> on the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> that was her situation. <laughs> she was like, I'm not going to make it, which is funny because, like, the way that they described all of these women was like they were all in such like poor health. I'm like, dude, yeah. are we surprised? Yeah. Let one sec. Now I really want to look up. Yeah. Uh, because it was Icovia. Ikova, who like didn't make it, so now I want to like look up and be like, "All right, which one was she? Which poopy one was she?" Like, COVID Ikova. COVID Ikova couldn't make it because uh, she had COVID. Good joke, Katrina. Excellent work. <laughs> oh my gosh, it it was shitty, Ikova. <laughs> <laughs> it was diarrhea, Linda. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, there is a God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador of the Sky, for providing us with this comedic moment. Yep, it was beautiful. So, immediately, Prince Tadio was like, Oh, well, what are, what are we going to do? Because my wife is craving stories. She has to have stories. Like, what should we do? And immediately, it doesn't say, like, who thought of this, but they immediately thought to not go inquiring too far for a woman who could possibly fill the spot. <laughs> so they just asked Zoza, who lived, like, across the street, if she would come over to spend the day, like, with them and possibly, you know, tell a story at the end of the day. So, of course, Zoza, our secret princess, is like, of course, I'm going to come over. I will definitely come over. So she shows up and every day for this like situation, they would kind of be 
using up the morning, like the morning was for them, like eating a feast and kind of just like chatting and their, their reward for being storytellers was getting a chance to kind of like be it hang with the cool kids. Exactly. Like be on the palace grounds, like doing different things. And so go to the white house and be served a banquet feast of McDonald's. Yep. <laughs> to celebrate you winning the Super Bowl. Yep, you won the Super Bowl. Have some McDonald's. <laughs> Ex- Cold McDonald's. <laughs> exactly what you deserve. Oh, man. What is the world coming to? <laughs> like politics? Anyway. So they all got to hang out inside of like the castle gardens and kind of chat, play games, like kill time. Until it was like noon and they would start their like storytelling. So uh, the prince, Tadio, asked, oh, if we could have a little bit while we wait for the time to tell stories, maybe we can have a little bit of amusement. Does anybody have any ideas? And one of his stewards was like, oh, we might have a fun game. All of us playing the game of games. American football. The steward suggested that they play the game of games, which is basically saying like, oh, we're going to play some like witty wordplay game. And Mm. it's also called the game of blunders. But basically the game, and I'm not going to go point for point through it because essentially it's Jim Batista Basile's way of putting some really clever punning and wordplay like into the story. And it's like, it's really, really fun. But for us, we would not understand basically any of the cultural context for the jokes that they are making. And so storytelling wise on my end, it's kind of boring, but um, I do want to explain the game and kind of give some examples because I do think it's like, it's a, It's so interesting that it was considered kind of like a fun party game. So essentially what this steward is doing is he walks around to each one of the people and asks them if they will play a certain type of game with him, like a certain like card game or something like a well-known game of that time. Mm -hmm. And they are supposed to take the name of the game he's asking them to play and creating a pun out of it to say why they would not play the game. So, okay. for example, if somebody, if he came up to you and said, oh, Jeff, would you like to play the game of craps with me? You would say, oh, no, for that is a game that is better suited to Diarrhea Linda. <laughs> 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 because, of course, yeah, like, craps amazing. is the Love name it. of an actual card game. But dice, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> craps is the name of an actual like game with dice, but it also to crap. I know <laughs> I should I should know better. But also crap is a, a vulgar term. <laughs> it's not that vulgar for pooping, which we all know diarrhea Linda suffers from an excess of. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, the game basically goes like that, which I think is like really, really fun. But again, you can see why it's kind of hard to translate the funniness across. Yeah, if you don't know the game, 
and like you don't know. Yeah, you don't know what the game. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what the Italian word is, and then what the pun inside of the Italian word the yeah. the pun the wordplay that existed in the 1500s <laughs> in Italian in Italian in a special dialect of Italian yeah. too. So yeah. R.I.P. the people who are like translating it and trying to do the research on it to put the little notes in the bottom to say like uh -huh. what the joke was and why it was funny. If you have to put like special annotated notes inside of the joke, it's not funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they always say. But yeah, in my head, I was trying to think of like what more funny like puns and stuff would be for like games if somebody was like, 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 oh, do you want to play the game Exploding Kittens with me? And then like, ah, oh, no, that seems better suited for Ted Bundy. Oh, <laughs> that was a serial killer joke that I just came up with. And I apologize for that. I was like, oh, who would explode kittens? Man, I'd be good at this game. Do another one, Jeff. <laughs> I haven't done any so far. You've been playing this game all by yourself. You're playing solitaire. <laughs> oh, I was waiting for you oh, to try and make a I'm pun sorry. about how you're not playing solitaire because solitaire that would be a game better suited for an electrical engineer oh. because they have no friends. No, <laughs> I got it. You're like, yeah, Katrina, we picked up what you're putting down. Dang, Jeff, I kind of want to do this game like all day. This actually is like pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. It does sound like a fun game. Yeah. Anyway. We'll play offline someday. Yeah. Maybe maybe that'll be something we do on the fifth Friday people fest. <laughs> we'll play that that could be actually pretty interesting. Like if people in the in the chat are throwing out games yeah. and then we have to like respond to it. Nah, it could be good. Well, I'll something write it down. We'll see. For the game of blunders. But anyway, um finally the steward got to Zoza and like all of them all of them were being pretty like you know quick-witted all the ladies were it was a pretty quick repartee like back and forth boom 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 there were a couple of them cuz the prince was the judge of whether they had given a good answer or not and there were some of them where you know the the prince would be like uh no, I don't know if that one works. And then the lady would kind of be like, oh, no, but if you think of it like this, and then they'd be like, oh, that is clever. <clears throat> Too clever for the prince to pick up on. So finally, the steward gets over to Zoza, and he says, I can't believe that Madame Zoza would refuse an invitation as the others have done, and so she will give me the pleasure of playing Take Off Your Pants With Me for a Silver <laughs> Coin. <laughs> if anyone asks you to play that game, Say no and call the police. Yeah, for real. And then Zoza. I mean, it, oh. unless you're down. And I don't know. It doesn't in the notes tell me what take off your pants game is. <laughs> take off your pants with me for a silver coin. But Z I think we all know what game that <laughs> is, Katrina. But it sounds pretty suggestive. Um, So while she was playing the game, she didn't have a very good, like, come back a good like retort to say like why she wouldn't play the game and so the prince you know stepped in as the ref of the game and was like oh nope that wasn't like that wasn't a good enough answer so your punishment will be chosen by madam lucia my wife 
because like if if you mess up, then you have to pay like a penalty. Kind of like to me, it comes off more of like a truth or dare type situation of like, oh, like mm-hmm. you messed up. Now you have to do like another thing. So Zosa went and knelt before the princess who ordered that she should sing a song for everybody that was there. And it says a tambourine was brought and the prince's coachman played a sither and she sang a song. And the song itself in Italian contained, and like, again, 1500s, like Italian, contained a bunch of like proverbial sayings inside of it. And the whole song kind of gives like a general sense of saying farewell to a person that you once loved, but who has like wronged you. And now you're like singing about being happy to be freed from them, Mm. which narrative wise, like storytelling wise, it was important for like Zosa to be singing this song because it's very like hinting at, how the prince's heart is going to about to be like turned. And so in this frame narrative, this is how Zosa was there on the fifth day, because before, as all these stories are being told, she hasn't been present for the storytelling and she wasn't invited. She wasn't invited. She wasn't one of the 10 ladies. So now day five, diarrhea, Linda was too busy. Uh, to come. And so Zosa is here. She's already, you know, gotten to sing this song in front of everybody. And it said the song and the pleasure of all those listening to it ended at the same time the tables were set. And if what they gobbled down was good, what they drank was even better. (laughs) And so feeling sloshed, all of them began their storytelling. And before Jeff starts retelling his tale, I want to say that There were nine stories that went, or eight stories that went before Jeff's story. Jeff's story that he's about to tell, The Three Citrons, is the last story before, like, the final end of the frame narrative. And it's specifically chosen to be the last story because of all of the similarities between the frame story and what's happening inside the story. Mm. And so, yeah, be listening for that. And with that, Jeff will tell the three citrons. This storyteller whose name doesn't matter. It's not diarrhea, Linda. Kiyomitella. And I don't know what her uh, adjective is that goes Mangy. with her name. So, Mangy. <laughs> Kiyomitella. <laughs> Begins her story of the three citrons <laughs> by saying that the king of Hightower had a son who was like his right eye, on whom he had built the foundation for his every hope, and he could not wait to find a good match for him and to be called Grandpa. <laughs> but, of course, the prince, not so uh, into getting hitched. To finding a wife when anyone talked to him about like finding a wife or whatever he would just basically like shake his head and stare off into space basically they're like oh he'd shake his head and then you'd find him a hundred miles away so he just kind of like checks out 
And so the poor father, seeing his son unwilling to do what it would take to make his dreams of becoming a grandpa come true, (laughs) got more and more upset. And again, one of these fantastic uh, strings of poetic metaphors to describe how angry he got. He was so incensed, seething with fury, spitting mad, swollen with rage. All pretty normal so far. Uh, He was more incensed, seething with fury, spitting mad, and swollen with rage than a whore who has lost her client, a merchant whose partner has gone bankrupt, or a farmer whose jackass had died. (laughs) So that's pretty upset. The master of the metaphor. (laughs) And the reason for this is that, again, another pretty great quote, for his son was not moved by the tears of his daddy. (laughs) inappropriate like, okay. translation of the word daddy <laughs> they're like it's like uh, i probably would have used father but okay yeah so the son not moved by the tears of his father he also like was you know didn't apparently like it says like was not moved by the prayers of his vassals and he couldn't be budged in his opinion about whether or not he should get a wife even by the advice of like very respectable men and so and, like, hey, if you're not ready to get married I don't yeah, think you should get married. Everybody, don't, don't yeah. leave him alone. Don't pressure him. But I mean, tale as old as time, right? Like people being like, I want to be a grandpa. When are you guys going to get, when are you guys going to start <laughs> yeah. having babies? Like, exactly. none of your business. It's rude. Don't ask people that question. Yeah. And it, everyone's basically like, and this is, uh, you know, it's kind of a big deal too, because it explains it a little bit immediately following this section we're talking about here. But it's like, it's a king, his son, and if his son doesn't have a son or a child, I don't know how like the whatever goes, but they're saying like, it's going to be an end to the Royal line. And that's kind of like an important thing, you know, even more so than I get than than like, my just parents in, just bugging a, me. Yeah. And a family would be like, Oh yeah, you know, whatever. It's like, that's kind of, there's more pressure there. Still doesn't mean that he should have to do it, but there is that more pressure. But anyway, it basically said like, Nope, he was so stubborn. His hide was as thick as four fingers. So he just kind of like dug in, dug in his heels, says, plugged his fingers in his ears and said, no, 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 when everyone tried to convince him that he should have uh, a wife and have some babies. So one day, <laughs> the prince is sitting down to a lovely meal and he was about to cut some ricotta cheese in half. Classic. But here's the thing, Katrina. I don't want to like challenge the Italians on their own cheese, but anytime I've had ricotta cheese, it's not in a state that you can like cut it it's kind of like like greek yogurt like thick you know what i mean yeah i do know what you mean so i don't understand how he's cutting ricotta cheese but that's just me anyway he's about to cut some ricotta cheese in half i'm not going to argue with the text that's what it says all right but instead of paying attention to what he was doing he's watching some crows fly by which in a previous story was called the crow and as you may know a crow is a black bird and that's one of our Key colors you're supposed to be watching out for during this episode. A clue, a clue. So while the prince is preparing to cut the cheese, he watches some crows fly by and accidentally cuts one of his fingers by mistake. And two drops of his red blood fall into the white ricotta cheese. They blended together to create a color that was so beautiful and full of grace that... It goes on and on and on to talk about how beautiful of a color it was that this prince suddenly looking at this color of his own blood mixed into this creamy ricotta cheese 
decided that he wanted to find a woman who was as white and red as the ricotta cheese that was stained by his blood is. And not, not to put too fine a point on it, I do want to point out to people that the woman that he's looking for is the color of the white and red, like blended together, but not the black. Right. Which is going to be important textual, textual evidence for us later. Distracted by the black bird. Yep. He hurt himself. Co- yes. Yep. But then was inspired to go after a, a, a white, blood-stained, cheesy woman. <laughs> and suddenly this prince's like whole mindset has changed. He's like, oh, suddenly he's all about it. And so he's like, hey, pops, guess what? I'm going to go get me a girl that looks like this, but I have to go and search the world for her because apparently I'm not going to find her around here. Yep. There's and no bloody cheese girls here. <laughs> nope. And the king is upset about this. He's like, even though he's, you know, his dream of becoming a grandpa is one step closer. Yeah. Like his son's going to leave and he's not so happy about yeah, that. Yeah, which I was like, listen, sir, if you want him to get married, then... You probably need to give him the space to go find somebody. You can't have both things. He's like, find somebody that you're willing to marry, but also don't leave. Like, Yeah. Calm down. But and, and he goes on this big, long, like, I don't know what you would call it, diatribe? I don't know what diatribe means, but I know it's like an angry uh, monologue, essentially, of some kind, where he's just like berating his son a little bit. And he's like, okay, you're t- so you're telling me this. First, you don't want a wife so that you can, you know, deny me an heir. But now you say that you want to find a woman so that you can leave me alone and banish me from this world. And he's like, you just want to go around. You wander like a stray animal, leaving your home behind, leaving your home, your little hearth, your little fart, it says. <laughs> it does say I that. Like, I was like, wait, what? I mean, we were talking about cutting the cheese earlier, but I was like, what? Your home, your hearth, and your fart. Those are the three important things that you're going to be leaving behind if you leave yeah. me. I was like, okay. And then he's like, you know, don't you know how dangerous traveling is? Come on, son. Yeah. But the son was like, you know, just as stubborn as when he didn't want a wife, stubbornly insisting that, no, he is. You can't stop me, dad. So when the king saw that his son was, quote, a crow in the belfry, I thought was mm-hmm. an interesting choice of uh, yeah. metaphor. Especially, it's like, you know, I hear of bats in the belfry. Yep. But crows in the belfry. Interesting. But anyway, doesn't matter. He gives him some money, gives him servants. He's like, okay, fine, go. And it says like, you know, as he did so, he felt his soul tear away from his body. Oh my gosh. Dramatic much, dad. To calm down. And <laughs> you know, this is, it's kind of sweet though, really. Because it's like, so he goes out onto the balcony watching his son go away. And says he's crying like a cut grapevine, following his son with his eyes until he lost sight of him. So he like watched as his dad, you know, went away. Which reminded me of like in Japan, when I lived in Japan, it was like a thing where like they would, when you leave someone, they stand and wave to you like until you're gone, like out of sight. Which I've started doing like, but over the top dramatically to people. Like if someone's like leaving my house, I just go out of my porch and I like, wave until they're off they're not even looking at me anymore they're like way you know beyond my yeah. house and like not even thinking about me and i'm still just like waving and sometimes i'll just you know continue waving even when they're gone because because you, that's how much you love them yeah i'm not ready to say goodbye <laughs> i cry like a cut grapevine every time too. Aww. 
So, after the prince departed and left his father sad and embittered, he began to trot across fields and woods and mountains and valleys and plains and hills. He got the trots. And various towns. <laughs> so he's going all over the place, dealing with diverse peoples. And, of course, most importantly, always keeping those eyes of his open in case he should come upon the target of his desire. A bloody cheese woman. <laughs> So at the end of four months of this traveling, he ends up on the shore of France, which does sound like a more promising place to find, said Bloody Cheese Woman. Yeah, France France is full of them. He drops his servants off at a hospital because they're complaining of like, okay, migraines of the feet, which I didn't know that was a place you could get migraines, but apparently they were traveling so much that they had migraines. In the yeah. So their feet were hurting and he takes off on his own towards the Strait of Gibraltar. But does he stop in the Strait of Gibraltar? No, he doesn't. He gets on that and he sails toward the Indies. Mm. And I was like, the Indies or the West Indies? It's like, probably, who knows? Because it's 15, like 63 or something? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know what the map looked like then. Yeah, me either. But anyway, towards the Indies. But I do know that in 1492. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So he's sailing from kingdom to kingdom. Province to province, land to land, street to street, house to house, hole to hole. Oh. Continuing to seek after the bloody cheese woman (laughs) of his dreams. The cheese woman of his dreams. So he traveled on and on like this until he arrived at the island of the Ogresses. Where he dropped anchor and, you know, set ashore. And came across a very old, very thin, very ugly woman what were those adjectives again old thin ugly ah. no i just love the like this next sentence too i love the way that john batista basile like he sounds and maybe it's the translators obviously more than this but it's like it sounds very modern some of the stuff they say is like he told her what had dragged him out to those parts you know like i can imagine you know in a tv show yeah. he's like what drags you out to these parts <laughs> like the cop that's come into yeah. like you know, investigate the murder, but it's like they're old buddies from high school and like the warehouse worker who refuses to stop stacking boxes to talk to the police who are investigating murder, you know, just continues to stack boxes while being like, ah, a detective, what, what drags you out to these parts? <laughs> so basically what dragged him out to those parts was searching for a beautiful wife. Yep. But not this old, thin, ugly woman. Yeah. And this old, thin, ugly woman was not... Uh, very helpful because even after hearing about all the hardships and risks that he'd undergone, she's basically like, uh, you know what? You better get out of here because if my three sons, who are a butcher shop for human flesh, catch sight of you, then they're going to eat you. Half alive, half roasted. A baking pan will be your coffin and a belly your grave. That is so hardcore metal. Yeah. Doolahan lyrics right mm-hmm. there. Um, which was a cool, again, turn of phrase, basically meaning be your grave. <laughs> that, that's good. I Thank like you. it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you know, it's basically saying you're going to be eaten to death, not swallowed alive and then regurgitated later yeah. on. It sounds like they're going to eat you and do some other stuff and you're going to be alive for that. I'm like, oh, I don't want to watch somebody eat me unless. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Jeez, get <Katrina. laughs> My apologies. So this lady's like, get out of here or you're dead meat. Literally. And so the prince is like, yeah. And the prince is like, oh my gosh, that's uh, that's not what I want. So he's like, bye. 
And he put the road between his legs and began to consume the soles of his shoes. Again, beautiful turn of phrase. (laughs) Just like getting on the road and... Hit the road, Jack. Walking his shoes right off. So he arrived at another land and encountered another old woman. (laughs) Worse than the first. And so he told him everything that he'd been up to, what he was after. And this woman, again, is like, get out of here unless you want me to serve you as a snack to my ogre-lit sons. Ogre-lits. My little uh, ogre-lits. My little ogre-lits. And so he's like, okay. And so he takes off again and is like, I definitely don't want to be fed as a snack. He encounters an old woman in quite an interesting scene. She's sitting around. She's got a basket of like pastries and candies. And she's, you know, feeding these to a bunch of donkeys who were jumping around on the bank of a nearby river and doling out kicks to some poor swans. (laughs) (laughs) What? So she's sitting there feeding pastries and candies to donkeys who are just, for fun, kicking Kicking swans. swans. Sounds like a regular Saturday night. Normal Tuesday night for Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> Probably. So, Have you heard that song? Yes, I've heard that okay, song. Okay, good. It's my favorite. It lives Me, in my mind it. rent-free always. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the prince politely approaches this woman with some kind words and tells her his story. And she feeds him to a great meal. It was so good that he was like, you know, just licking his fingers Afterwards, he couldn't get enough. I hated the sound you just made. <laughs> no, that is not ASMR for me. <laughs> this is an AMSR, ASMR podcast. Uh, leave us a review if you liked the sound of that. And if I should do a spinoff ASMR podcast that you will come and listen to. Anyway, finishes up this delightful meal. Couldn't get enough. And she presents him with three citrons which are a citrus fruit that like a, what is, is it? A lemon is like a, a citron and something else bred together. Yeah. Doesn't matter. This isn't a horticulture podcast. So we will bypass The that. one thing that it's not. <laughs> the one type of podcast that this is not. You're like, this is not a horticulture podcast. <laughs> no. Even though we've done so many episodes. No, they, I guess they were bonus episodes on like, like the stories behind flowers and plants, and this might be a horticulture podcast. Mm. You're like, not today. Not if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> but anyway, these three citrons looked so nice that they looked like they had just, just been plucked right from the tree. And she gives him a nice knife, and she's like, okay, look, you found what you're looking for. Look no further. Go back home. Go to your kingdom. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just found the note that says, like, that goes with uh, doling out kicks to some poor swans. Uh huh. So the word swan was, uh, it's, was used metaphorically and rudely uh, to describe men of letters. So, like, academics. <laughs> <laughs> so these donkeys aren't kicking. These swans. Beautiful... They're not kicking birds. They're kicking like uh, men who sit around, like just Nerds. nerding out over, <laughs> <laughs> no, over books and stuff. They're they're kicking us. Essentially, they're kicking me. Essentially, <laughs> even more appropriate to a regular Tuesday night for Shia LaBeouf. 
So that's interesting. That's funny. Although I guess I guess it makes sense, but it's like, you know, a swan also a famously very white bird. Mm. But since that doesn't make sense now that like, well, donkey's kicking it too, it doesn't really make sense for like the theme. I'm just gonna we're gonna bypass it. All right. With that fun fact. So yeah. The old woman says to him, look, you can go back to Italy. You can go home. You found what you're looking for in these citrons. So she says, get back to your home kingdom. And when you get there, open the citrons at the first fountain you find. And what's going to happen when you open these citrons is that uh, a fairy is going to come out and say, give me something to drink. And since you'll be right there by a fountain, you'll give her something to drink. And like, that'll be good. But if you're not fast enough, she'll just disappear. Because you weren't able to satisfy her, quench her thirst quickly enough. Satisfy her quickly enough. <laughs> I wish that you had kept that verbiage. That was very uh, suggestive. And probably thematically appropriate. But anyway, but then it's like, but you've got three chances, basically. Like if you, you haven't got another chance with the second one, but if you mess up again, which is like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. You're not going to fool me again. <laughs> Uh, but then if you do still quench the thirst of the second fairy, you've got one last chance. And if you're able to make this fairy, it's weird because I couldn't tell. It sounds like it's the same fairy, like each time almost. It's hard to tell whether it's the same fairy or a different fairy. Yeah. Or because I'm like, what would have happened if he had quenched the thirst of all three of them? Would he have ended up with like three hot women? Yeah. Or- a harem. Did they give him three because they knew that, like... That he was going to mess it up. Yeah. Or did they give him three because this is a European fairy tale? All Mm. good points. So if you finally manage to catch this fairy, the third one, maybe, you'll have the wife that is your heart's desire. Presumably, this fairy is the very wife that he is looking for. And so the prince, it says, was full of joy. And he kissed that hairy hand that looked like the back of a porcupine a hundred times. It didn't look like the back of a porcupine a hundred times. He kissed it a hundred times. And so he left the old woman, got back to a boat, and started sailing home. And, you know, sailed through a bunch bunch more dangers. It was not an easy trip home. Went through a thousand storms and dangers. But finally, he landed a port that was only one day's ride from his own kingdom. So... As he's riding back to his kingdom from this port, he gets off in this lovely little wood in a nice shadowy spot where there is a fountain. (laughs) It's like, again, the poetic language threw me off. A fountain that with its crystal tongue whistled for people to come and refresh their mouths. (laughs) And so he like waters his horses and does whatever and sits down and he's like, time to open some citrons. And so he does. He takes a knife out of its sheath begins to cut the first citron, and like a flash of lightning came out a ravishingly beautiful girl, as white as creamy milk and as red as a cluster of strawberries. Mm. And she's like, quick, give me something to drink. And the prince was like so amazed that what he was told was going to happen happens exactly as it was said, (laughs) that he didn't give her water quickly enough, and boom, she just disappears, like in an instant. And so... The prince feels pretty dumb. It says it was like a club falling on the prince's noggin because he had what he desired so badly. He saw it in front of his own eyes and right when it was there in his grasp, it was taken from him. So he has another try. He cuts open the second citron. (laughs) 
And this was the second blow he received on the temple. So apparently he messed it up again. Yeah. And so he starts crying and crying and crying and crying. He's like, how could I mess this up twice? I can't believe it. And he's just like, you know, so upset. And he's like, if I mess it up again, like curse me, curse all these things. Give me arthritis. Give me the palsy. Make me run around like a greyhound. Like I'm, uh, I'm just the worst. What the heck? This is such a dumb. This knife will either give me the fairy or do something that won't smell very good. What? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like or, or like give me the fairy or or it will either give me the fairy or something bad will happen. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. Something that won't smell very good. Like what's gonna happen? Yeah. It's like gonna it'll either himself. give me the fairy or I'm g- gonna crap my pants. <laughs> it's yeah. like what? So anyway, so he he prepares himself with the knife for his very last try and he's like, "Look, this it's all or nothing. Here we go." So he cuts into the third citron and the third fairy comes out. So this time it does say that they're kind of different fairies. And the fairy says, "Give me something to drink." And the prince immediately holds out water to her and there in his hands was a girl as tender and white as curds and whey, with a streak of red on her face that made her look like an abruzzo ham or a nola salami. In other words, <laughs> this girl was a snack. <laughs> He's like, mm, are you a charcuterie boy? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, you remind me of cheese and meat. What? But he, he was like, you know, never had such a thing been seen in the world. <laughs> this ham salami cheese girl (laughs) it was a beauty without measure a whiteness beyond all imagination a grace superior to all others so it goes into this long string of like beautiful metaphors talking about how beautiful this girl is but the thing that's interesting about it is that it talks about like all these different like roman or yeah i guess it's the roman ones roman like goddesses that had somehow blessed this fairy in some way so like jove rained gold onto her hair and love used gold to make arrows for piercing hearts. And then also Venus and her whole temple was like a lit on this woman's lips, coloring the rose so that might prick with its thorns a thousand enamored souls. And the best of all, Katrina, that I think you would appreciate, Juno had squeezed her tits on that breast so that human <laughs> desires might there be nursed. I do it's like, like that. Whoa. It was really very sweet for quite a time. And it goes from like, you know, oh, rose on the lips that'll prick with its thorns a thousand enamored souls to like talking about Juno's breasts, nursing the desire of the world. <laughs> In short, she was so beautiful from head to toe that it was impossible to find a more splendid creature. And the prince did not know what had happened to him. So the prince really can't believe his eyes. And he's like, wait a minute, am I dreaming? He's like, <laughs> Did you put your eyes on backwards? That's what he asked himself. And he's like, look at this beautiful thing that has come out of like this citron, like such a sweet paste from a sour fruit. But then he realized like, no, this isn't a dream. This is for real. And so he like hugs the fairy, gives her a hundred and then another hundred kisses and hugs and then exchanges with her a thousand amorous words about this and that. And so he's like, but listen, I don't want to bring you back to my father's house without like the luxuries like suitable for you who is going to be a future queen. So what I want you to do is climb up this oak tree where it looks like basically nature's made us a a nice little place for us to live and hang out for a a time and wait for me to come back. 
and I'm going to go out and I'm going to take you back to my kingdom dressed and accompanied with all the luxury that befits you. And so he takes off, leaving her up in a tree. All right. And here's the time where it starts to get pretty racist. So you have been warned. In the meantime, a black slave had been sent by her mistress with a jug to get some water at the fountain. And so when this enslaved woman is bending down to the water to get the water for her mistress, she sees the image of this fairy up in the tree reflected back at her in the water. And she thinks that it's herself rather than this fairy in the tree. Yeah. As she is bending down to fill this jug with water, she catches a glimpse of the reflection of the fairy in the water, thinking that it's her own reflection. And she's like, oh my gosh, look at me. And she calls herself by her own name, calling her Unfortunate Lucia, which was interesting because is that not the same name as another character in the frame story leading into this? It is the exact same name of the what current princess. Lucia. And the reason why they're both named Lucia is racism. Um, So back in that time period, when people were basically doing like the equivalent of like minstrel shows Mm -hmm. back then, the character who was usually a man in blackface pretending to be a a black woman. Mm Mm-hmm. His name was Lucia. Oh, well, so it's like a stock character. It was a stock character. Like a stock racist character. A stock racist character of basically like, oh, you know the stereotypical, like, yeah. Lovely. Person in blackface. So that's why this Lucia is the, has the exact same name as the Lucia in the frame story. Which yeah. also, this is probably the point in this story when Princess Lucia is going. Wait, is this play about us? (laughs) Yeah, it does seem like it might be. Um, And so she starts talking to herself. And again, we brought this up in the last episode, but the dialogue, the way the dialogue is written for this character, again, is like, even as as translated, who knows? We could be very generous and say that, you know, it wasn't as like just horrible and unrealistic. as it sounds in modern day, but it probably was meant yeah. to be. So in, basically, in the, in the editor's notes for this like version, they basically say that it was written in an Italian that was basically how they translate it, where it was like right. They had them speaking in a way that was like the derogatory way of yeah, and like ungrammatical and like mixing things up and like speaking like very simply or whatever. Yeah. And so it was that way in the original Italian. And so they tried to then show that same like difference of how the right. language was written in the in English. In the way that they translated it. Yeah. yeah. So, so no, it, don't worry. It was as racist in the original Italian. Oh, good. <laughs> so comforting. <laughs> Excellent. But the gist of what happens is she sees this reflection And thinks it's her, and she's like, wait a minute, I'm too beautiful to be fetching water for this stupid lady, so I'm not going to do it. And she, like, basically smashes her jug and goes home. 
And when she gets home to her mistress, it's like, hey, where's the water I asked for? And she's basically like, oh, I went to the fountain and it like hit a rock and broke. I'm sorry. And she's like, okay. Well, the next day gives her a barrel and tells her to go and fill that barrel with water. And so Lucia returns to the fountain again and again sees this beautiful fairy reflection shining back up at her and thinks it's her again. And she's like, oh my God. I like, I don't want to read what it says, but says yeah, no, of some, course. Like, some super like she's racist things about herself. She's like, I'm not such and such and such and such and such. Like all these like racial like stereotypes. She's like, I'm this beautiful like white fairy instead. I shouldn't be fetching water. And so she smashes the barrel into like a thousand pieces and then gets back to her mission. She's like, you know, really upset. And um, the mistress is also upset. because She's like, why do you keep coming back without the water or the vessel that I gave you to collect it in? And her excuse this time is that uh, a donkey came by and kicked it to pieces, uh, took a break from kicking some academics to <laughs> just beat down on this barrel. <laughs> and so like, this woman who has asked Lucia to go and fetch water loses her calm, picks up a broom, and starts just beating this woman and, like, bruising her up really, really bad. And then finally she says – she gives her a goat skin, gives Lucia a goat skin and says, like, go and get some uh, – go and get some water. It's like, no more excuses. Fill this water and bring it back immediately. And she says – like, if you don't bring this water back immediately, I'll grab you like an octopus and give you such a beating that you'll always remember my name. Which I thought was a really awesome threat that I would like to commit to memory and use to threaten <laughs> people in the future. My, myself. Grab you like an octopus and give you such a beating you'll always remember my name. It probably works better if you're saying it against someone who, like, doesn't already know your name because, like, they live with you. Like, if it was a stranger... You know, and then yes. they'd be like, wait, what is your name? And I'll be like, I'll tell you as I'm it's beating you with my eight arms. Geoffrey. Get it right. And they're like, what kind, what, what kind of a name is Geoff? So after receiving this just S-tier level threat, <laughs> Lucia runs off for she had experienced the lightning and was afraid of the thunder. Ooh. Which is like another great turn of phrase. Yeah. And so there she is. Again, at the fountain, filling the goat skin with the water. And again, she sees the reflection of this woman in the tree, thinking that this fairy in the tree, thinking that it's herself. And she's like, she's like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? I'm not going to do this. And so she takes a pin from her hair and like she'd already filled the goat skin up with water. And she starts poking it with like tons of holes. So it's like shooting like hundreds of jets of water. Yeah. So it looked like a trick fountain in a garden, which was pretty funny. That's like a pretty funny way to, you know, like. You could just throw it on the ground and let it all spill out. But it's like, it's very purposefully disdainful of this like task, you know, probably cathartic too, to like jab it full of holes. Which I do want to say the note on this that says, it says trick fountains and other water games were popular in 17th century gardens. And Mm. I'm like, I would like to know more about Like, what were trick fountains? Are trick fountains like somebody walks past them and then the fountain spits on them? Because I love like that's awesome. That'd be great. I, like, yeah, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Forget this whole book. I want to read a research <laughs> paper on 17th century trick fountains. Yeah, make a note of that. Let's do it. Um, I very briefly googled trick fountains, and it, they don't seem actually like 
that tricky. They just seem like like oh, it's like shooting like jets in like an arc across. Oh, stuff, or... oh <clears throat> boring. A, I've been yeah. to the Bellagio fountains. <laughs> that's wh- that's the trickiest fountain of the trickers. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so as the fairy is watching this scene unfold of like this woman like poking a bunch of holes in his goat skin and the water spilling out, she thinks that it's hilarious. And so the fairy starts to laugh, like just so loud. And so when Lucia hears the laughter, she looks up and sees for the first time, not the reflection of this woman, but this woman, this fairy herself up in the tree and then realizes that it is a different person. It's not her. It's actually like this fairy whose reflection that she's been seeing. And she gets very mad. And she's like, you're the reason that I got the crap beat out of me the other day because I thought I was you and all this stuff. But she's like, asks her, like, what are you doing up there? And so the fairy, because she was a very courteous individual, tells Lucia everything that had happened. Like everything and everything that happened with the prince and why she was up in that tree and that the prince would be coming any minute now with clothes and like a, a train for, you know, like her a wedding train or whatever. Which I was like, I, I guess I imagine like, you know, the like the veil or whatever kind of a train. But who knows? I mean, I guess it's not a veil. It's like the train of a dress. I'm going to skip that part because I don't understand what I'm talking about. I think I think it means kind of like an entourage. Entourage? That like, makes sense, in, too. In that was the mind, other thing. In my mind, he's gathering up all, like, the thing that's for, like, Prince Ali, fabulous, and so it was, like, a, um, like just a, a big envoy, like, a big celebration stuff. Yeah. Which, I'm skipping that anyway. So Yeah, good. <laughs> so, and she says, up until the point where she says, too, that the prince is going to be coming back any moment now with all these fabulous things to take me back to his kingdom. The, so Lucia hearing this is like, Oh, starts getting an idea for herself. She's like, Oh, since you're waiting for, you know, a husband to come, come on down here and let me comb your hair so I can make you even more beautiful. And so, you know, Lucia reaches out to help this fairy down from the tree. And so like, she like, they grab hands and it Uh says like when the, Interesting just because of, again, the topic of the episode of the colors says that when Lucia grabs the fairy's hand, so it says the the little white hand grasped by those black sticks look like a crystal mirror in an ebony frame. And then she helps her down. And so she starts to fix her hair. And then while she's fixing her hair, she takes the pin and it says she pierces her memory, which I don't understand what that means, but it's like, it sounds like just poking the her brain pin into her yeah. head. <laughs> yeah, like, give it, lobotomizing her with a pin. Yikes. And so, the, the it doesn't say that she was being lobotomized, just that her memory was being <laughs> pricked. What, where's your memory stored? Think about that. Anyway, when she feels this, the fairy's like, oh no, and just shouts, dove, dove, and turns into a dove and flies off. So Lucia herself gets naked, gets out of like the rags and tatters that she had been wearing. And she climbs up into the tree and it says (laughs) she climbed up and sat atop the tree just as her mother had made her. She looked like a statue of jet in a house of emerald, which makes me think, was the fairy naked in that tree? That's what I wondered as well. If I'm like, did she pop out of that citron like completely nude? Was that why that guy was like 
why he was so shocked that he what? didn't give her water. He it makes did... a lot more sense. Yeah, because he was like, oh my gosh, a fully naked woman. And she's like, get me a drink. And he's like, I don't know what to do right now. I am staring at boobies. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's, it makes me Boobie think that. Boobie is so that she... beautiful that it was as if uh, Juno had squeezed her own teats uh, onto this woman. Gosh. That's right. Um, so anyway, now Lucia is sitting up in this tree naked waiting for the prince to return. And oh my gosh, again, so racist, but I'm going to have to quote this racistness because there's no way to explain it in a way that just doesn't sound as terrible. But the prince comes back, sees Lucia in the tree, and he says, quote, who put this ink blot on the royal paper where I plan to write my happiest days? Yipes. Who draped with black mourning the freshly whitewashed house where I thought it would take all my pleasures? And he kind of goes on with other stuff. So he goes on for a little bit with all these like racist poetic metaphors for how his dreams have been changed. And when Lucia sees that the prince is kind of just like very confused by this situation, he's like wondering what is going on. He doesn't understand it. She gets another great idea. And she says, quote, not to marvel my prince for presto me be enchanted. One year white face, one year black ass. Oh, gosh. It's like, oh my gosh. Again, horribly racist. But anyway, so she was like cleverly explaining that, you know, she's like, you know, changes appearance because of whatever like enchantment that's about her. Yeah. She's like, oh, it's, it's magic. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, this is what's going to happen. And so he's like, all right. And he gets her down out of the tree, dresses her from head to toe and gives her a complete makeover, decking her out in, you know, all the splendor that he had planned to bring back, you know, the fairy to his kingdom with. And so they set off for their land and they're received there by the king and queen. They saw, again, a fine demonstration offered by their crazy son who had, quote, voyaged so far in search of a white dove only to bring home a black crow. And Mm. they were still, you know, like super happy and excited. They got them married and they gave her a crown and she became, you know, like princess of this prince. And so there was a huge... Festival and these fabulous festivities, banquets, you know, the the typical, you know, stuff surrounding like a big fancy wedding. They list just a tons and tons of food that they had. And it sounds like a good time. And I'm like, man, I wish I could have some uh, suckling pigs and baby goats and eh, maybe not baby goats. Meatballs. Mm. Thousands of other tasty mor- morsels. Anyway, as the uh, cooks are preparing this fantastic banquet a little white dove appears at the window of the kitchen and speaks <laughs> to the cook and is like hey cook what's going on and the cook is like what what's going on what is this dove talking to me that's kind of weird and then the dove comes back a second time and a third time kind of talking to him again he's like oh my gosh what's going on so he goes and he starts telling the royal family about like what's going on he's like guys there's this dove that keeps coming and trying to talk to me and so Lucia is like, okay, get that dove and add it to the feast. Cook it up and <laughs> we're going to eat it. And so the cook's like, okay, catches this uh, magic talking dove, plucks it, cooks it, 
takes the feathers and the water that the dove was boiled in, puts it into a flower pot on the balcony. Uh-huh. Exactly how I cook my dove as yeah. well. That's the most important step when cooking dove. But it's a good thing he did that because after three days' time, from that flower pot with the leftover dove water and feathers, springs up a lovely little citron tree. So when, when the prince looked out the window, he saw this tree and he's like, wait a minute, what's going on? And so he goes over to the cook and asks the cook, like, hey, what is happening? Where'd this tree come from? And so the cook tells him the whole story. He talks about there's this crazy talking dove that came in, it happened three times, told him the whole story. Your, you know, wife, now the princess, she told me to cook it. So I did. And I decided, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to throw the water and the feathers into this pot and put it outside. And so the prince hearing this, he's like, ah, interesting. He starts getting kind of suspicious. He starts getting a little suspicious about like, okay, this is kind of a weird thing that's happening. So he orders that no one is allowed to touch this tree, a penalty of death. And he orders also that it be tended with great care, watered, you know, so that it can continue to grow. And so after three days, this tree sprouted three splendid citrons, which were similar to the one that the ogres had given him. And so after they had been fully grown, he had them picked. Then he went by himself into a room with a large glass of water (laughs) and the same knife that he had always carried ever since uh, the ogres had given it to him. And he began to cut. And it says, interestingly, even though he had the glass of water right there, the same thing happened with the first and second fairies that had happened the other time. That they came, they said, give me water. He wasn't fast enough and they ran off. (laughs) But then when he cut the third citron, gave the fairy something to drink and he found sitting in front of him that same young lady that he'd left up in the tree and then heard her story about everything that had happened, how she'd been tricked by Lucia, turned into a dove and then cooked and eaten. And so the prince is super excited to be reunited with this fairy that he had fallen in love with that he takes her by the hand, goes into the middle of the hall where, you know, all the people were gathered and still in the middle of the festivities for the wedding. And he starts calling them over one by one. And he's like, I guess, kind of telling them the story of what had happened. He's like, this is the person that I was supposed to marry. Something happened. There was a whole trick going on. What sort of punishment should we do to someone who would go and harm such a lovely lady as this? And all the people at the court start throwing out like, just the most absolutely sadistic ways of yeah, killing someone that you can imagine. Oh, gosh. Like making a collar of rocks, beating them with a mallet, uh, poisoning them, a choker of millstones, blah, 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 blah. All these terrible things. And so finally, uh, the prince calls for Lucia, brings her to him, and then asks her the same question. But like, what do you think should be done to someone that would harm this lovely lady in such a way. And Lucia says that they deserve to be burned and have their ashes thrown from the castle top. And so the prince says, well, okay, you've written your own bad fortune by your own pen. This is exactly what's going to happen. So basically, the prince says, like, you've made your bed and now you're going to lie in it. And he says that, not in that turn of phrase, but in many other turn of phrase, like, You've cut your own foot with your own hatchet, forged your own chains, sharpened your own knife, dissolved your own poison, on and on and on. And he's like, you know what? No one deserves this more than you. And like, don't you recognize that this is the dove whose throat that you had slit, that whose head you poked, all these bad things. And it's like, you're done. 
It's like, those who do evil should expect evil. And those who cook branches ladle out smoke. And so as he was saying all of these things, he has her taken out, placed alive onto a large pile of wood, and then had her burned, and then scattered her ashes from the top of the castle into the wind, thereby proving the truth of the saying, those who sow thorns should not go barefoot. The end. So as the storyteller, what was her name? Mangy (laughs) Sinomelta or something? Yeah. Siamella or something. Siamella. As she was telling this story, progressively, some of the other ladies were getting a little uh, concerned about, like, why would this lady tell this story that obviously has this racist stuff? When we know that Princess Lucia is also a black woman named Lucia. Like, yeah, they, they were kind of like, oh, um. Yeah, that would be like me sitting here telling a story and being like, so um, in this story, this like really horrible person named Katrina came along and she was just super sneaky and tricky. And then Katrina did all these things that are kind of similar to things that Katrina has actually done in real life. And um, then she got burned alive (laughs) and it was Katrina and you're Katrina. And I'm telling you this story, Katrina. You deserve to be burned alive. (laughs) It's like. Like that was a, that was a terrible like analogy, but yeah, but that'd be like me like you know, yeah, whatever. I don't. know. It's not like me telling a story. It's like yeah. people they get it. The people get it. The people get it. They they understood without you explaining. Without uh, me explaining it worse. <laughs> Towards the end of the story, they started murmuring and accusing her of poor judgment, since she shouldn't have broadcast the disgraceful actions of someone so similar to their princess. <laughs> And that she was running a great risk of ruining the game, meaning like the the storytelling thing that they had going on of like getting free food at the castle every day to tell her stories. And then they're like, okay, why did you tell that story? That was like super awkward. We all felt uncomfortable that you were saying that. But also, meanwhile, Princess Lucia, it said, truly acted like a Lucia, which Again, as a reminder, that's a racist joke that Jean-Baptiste de Basile was saying when he wrote that. Um, He was like, she was acting like a real, and it's like, don't, no, don't say that. It's inappropriate. Um, Because she, the whole time, that once the story kind of got to a certain point where she kind of recognized herself in the story, she started to like act kind of like agitated and irritated. But at the same time, the spell that had been placed on her by that magical item uh, from the last story where, mm-hmm. where she like had these cravings for the stories, like she still had those cravings for the story. So while she was, she didn't want to stop the story from being told but she also was not enjoying the story that was being told. Because, yeah, it says she couldn't free herself of the tales after the doll had put such a fire of desire for them in her body. And so she also didn't want to give her husband, Tadio any reason to, like, suspect her. So she was just kind of like, like, uh, ignoring it, ignoring it, like, whatever. So, mm-hmm. yeah, little chitter-chatter between everybody else. Like, oh, this is kind of an awkward story to tell. And obviously... Um, Lucia is like uncomfortable with the story being told. Tadio apparently oblivious to all of this. Way to go, Tadio. Um, he turns to Zoza and tells her, "Hey, 
We've heard nine tales. So far, you're the last for today. Please grace us with a story. And Zoza is like, well, I know that truth has always been the mother of hatred. Meaning, like, I know that if I tell the truth, it people will hate me for it. Like, it'll mm. make people, it'll it'll upset, like, other people. But... I'm not a very good storyteller, and so all I can do is tell you the story of my life. And Tadio was like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely fine. That lovely mouth can issue nothing that is not sugary and sweet. Which is like, sir, you're married. (laughs) Don't talk about other people's mouths. (laughs) You creep. And when he said those words, that it upset his wife because that is like that's a weird thing to say to somebody, <laughs> especially yeah. like if you're a married man and this is a clearly a very attractive woman, and you're saying like, "Oh, I'm sure anything that comes out of your mouth is going to be delicious." <laughs> like, bro, settle down. And again, the the sentence I'm about to read is uh, very racist. But it's full of like color words, which is the thesis of what we're doing. And so it's important. It says, These words were daggers in the heart of the slave, and she would have shown the sign of it if black faces as white ones were the book of the soul. And she would have paid a finger of her hand to have her stomach empty of those tales, for her heart had become blacker than her face. And fearing that the last tale had been an announcement of the bad fortune to come. So, in the meantime, Zoza began telling the story from the very beginning, all about how tragic her you know life had been before because she was unable to laugh, and all the things her dad had done to try to get her to laugh, and that she couldn't. She was just such a like a melancholy person, and it was so hard for her. It's like part of her like tragic backstory, and then she tells about how like the very first time that she ever in her life laughs. She's immediately punished for it and cursed that she won't find love until she, you know, uh, goes to this fountain. And so when she starts talking about this fountain, Lucia jumps up and shouts at her to, like, shut her mouth and, like, be quiet or else... Again, a threat that was common in the last story was that she would punch her stomach and, like, kill her unborn child. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. That was terrible. Yeah, that was terrible. If, you know, her demands, like, weren't met. And so she immediately is, like, like, shouting for Zoza to be quiet or she's going to, like, punch her stomach to, like, kill the baby. But at that point, Tadio, hearing about this, like, enchanted fountain with a man inside of it, he was like... Wait, this sounds familiar. <laughs> I used to be a prince who was trapped inside of a magic fountain. <laughs> Coincidences all over the place. And so he tells Princess Lucia to like shut her mouth and that he doesn't care what happens to Georgie because he wants to hear Zoza finish her story. And so he encourages Zoza to keep talking. And so she talks about how, you know, she filled up this pitcher with her tears and it was almost full before she went to sleep. And she talks about how she woke up and it was empty 
and the prince was out of the fountain and already married. And by that point, there's something to be said about white women's tears at this point in the story. Um, because immediately it's like, as she was speaking, she burst into tears and there was not a person present that was able to remain unmoved when this blow hit. So yeah, I am like, there's a lot of discussion about like white women, like weaponizing their tears, like to get people to, to take immediate action to make them like feel better. Uh, but you know, obviously in this case, in this story, bad things had happened to her. Her story like is tragic, but again, there's a lot of it, like systematic racist like th- things and themes like inside of like this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm just that struck me as I was reading it when it was like, and as she said these things, she burst into her tears and everybody was moved. And my brain was like, yeah, white women's tears. And I was like, oh, that's yeah. Just interesting. Blah, blah. I just thought that was interesting. We're not going to get all into like a critical race theory because that's too much in this for right now. So as Zosa was crying, princess Lucia, you know, got really quiet, not knowing like what was going to happen to her. And it says, Tadio understood and fished out the truth about the matter. And so, you know, he immediately turned to Lucia and was like, explain yourself is this true like what is your side of like the story like what's going on and he it says made her confess to the betrayal with her own mouth and then and this is like i feel like more gruesome than the being burnt alive uh, in your story Mm -hmm. they had her buried alive but they left oh, her geez. head above the ground so that she would slowly die basically of starvation. Jeez. Which that kind of like brutality really ruins the ending of the story for me personally, where uh. it was like, Oh, we're going to leave this person to be tortured to death. And then Zosa, and this prince got married and became man and wife. And I'm like, yeah, I'm uh, not on board with this ending. But anyway, so we will end the story <laughs> that they got married and then they went back to Harry Valley. We will remember is where she's <laughs> I forgot from. about Harry Valley. <laughs> there was the, another story. The other story we told last time had a name that was like similar to that. It was like. Like shady thicket or something, yeah, like the or, bulging mound or something. <laughs> it was, yeah. It's like, what is going on with these stories? Like, that's got to be intentional, but yeah. yeah who knows? But anyway, so her and the and Tadio got married, and they went back to the kingdom that she was from in Harry Valley, so that they could announce to her father, the king, that you know this daughter who he had wanted to make laugh he wanted to have a happy ending they could show like oh i found i married this prince and we're happy and they lived happily ever after and the story ends you know coming back to the ultimate storyteller of the tale because again frame stories exist in one more greater frame and that's the storyteller right. who's telling it jean Baptiste basile was telling these stories to an audience of uh, usually like dignitaries and the uh, high class. 
the aristocrats and whatnot. And so it mm-hmm. says, and with these new nuptials, the entertainment of the tales come to an end. Much good may it do to you and to your health. And I left one foot after the other with a little spoonful of honey. Basically being like, I told my tale and I was fed for it, you know, and I left. And that is the frame story that is surrounding The Tale of Tales by Jean-Baptiste Pessile. So, talking about colors. <laughs> What's the point of this episode? What were we trying to teach and discuss in this tale? Racism is bad. That's number one. First and foremost. But that's not actually the point. It just so happens that there was a ton of racism in these stories. Yeah. Because we wanted to talk about, um, like, cultural context in stories and how they relate to color. Because even though these three colors show up in this story and they show up in Snow White, it doesn't necessarily mean that they symbolically mean the same thing in this story and in the Snow White tale, even though we'll talk in a minute about how those colors did probably find their way into other European folk stories. But in Jeff's story, we saw a princess that was white and red, and it was like specifically like ricotta cheese mixed with like a little bit of blood, but she wasn't black. There wasn't a black feature on her that was discussed. But in the tale, the thing that was black was this crow that flew overhead and he hurt himself, which is supposed to symbolize the, or kind of foreshadow this black woman that was going to- distracted him. That distracted him away from his- actual princess and that harmed him and others and so it very much made the colors about skin Mm -hmm. like it very much was about like this is like a white beautiful woman and this is a black woman that we are supposed to also like buy into the cultural context of it that like that equals bad yeah and that that provides this cultural context around these colors so that we can understand what they were getting at using those colors in the story. So what do the colors black, red, and white mean to us? When we started this series of like the Snow White Tales, uh, we started by retelling the story of the Trojan War. Because we were examining how over the centuries these stories shape our cultural understanding and create like a a shared symbolic language. And so for the Trojan War, we were talking about, you know, like the apple used in the contest of the fairest of them all. And it, it makes a lot of sense resurfacing in Snow White when there's jealousy between characters about like who's the fairest of them all. But it also is a symbol of a loss of innocence in the Judeo-Christian world because of the tale of Adam and Eve, Mm -hmm. which in Europe, that was very much like a part of that, where an apple in another culture that doesn't have all these stories in the background of it, they're not going to have the same symbolic meaning behind an apple. Right. That that Europeans would. 
And so black, white, and red, they also come loaded with years and years of meaning behind them as well for us. And it makes sense that these elements that we see of a person looking for a woman with like those tricolored features went from Jim Batiste's collection of tales into the tales of the Brothers Grimm. But the cultural context did not necessarily come with it. Like the the racist elements that were in like the this tale didn't necessarily travel because they were unnecessary for this. I'm not saying that like, oh, but right. nobody was racist by the time the yeah. Grimm's brothers. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But that message was not carried over in the tale. But you still have to examine kind of then the the cultural context when we do talk about the colors in Snow White and what they could mean because they will have a cultural context, but you have to look within that actual culture and usually mm -hmm. like the document, like the text itself to look for evidence of that or look in tales like adjacent to it for evidence of that. Yeah. But yeah, these stories were important for us to talk about as we were tracing how the elements got from like one story to another. So while some of the cultural context behind the colors might not have traveled from Jean-Baptiste Basile's The Tale of Tales into the Grimm Brothers collections, these elements did come from uh, this like origin or, you know, there's pretty good evidence to suggest um, in that right. the Grimm's brothers themselves were huge fans of the tale of tales and Jean-Baptiste Basile as like a story collector and as a writer, because as we said, these stories are kind of like the Grimm's brothers in that they're not original to Jean-Baptiste Basile. He didn't come up with these stories. He didn't invent these stories, but he did collect them and write them down and add his own flair and obviously arrange them in a set in a very purposeful way to create this art. Like he purposefully, as a writer, decided that he was going to put the three citrons right before the the end of the tale to highlight the similarities like it this is a work of literature mm -hmm. while also being a collection of folk tales um so it's kind of one of those things where it's like it's not it's not a complete original work and i do love how jim batiste will point out um he'll make allusions to greco-roman stories that have similar like motifs and themes and elements yeah um, but anyway, the Grimm's brothers were huge fans and most of the people that they were collecting their stories from knew these tales as well, because these stories were written for aristocrats. They were written for like, you know, the, the, the richer, the more educated like people, and they'd been circulating for hundreds of years. Like these tales were being told in those like salons and those parlors. And so those were the kind of people that the Grimm's brothers were collecting tales from. They weren't collecting them actually from, you know, like people, they weren't traveling around the countryside, like recording stories. They were collecting them from like other aristocrats. 
And who would have known these stories? And so it makes sense that this element found its way into the Snow White story in their collection. But what is interesting, I think, for us today doing this like episode is what these colors mean to us today culturally are loaded with meanings still, even if they're different meanings. Yeah. And with how famous the tale of Snow White is, like, we don't know this story. I would hazard to guess that most people who are listening to this episode have not heard this tale before. It's not as famous as Snow White, <laughs> especially, you know, considering all of the, not just Disney, but how ubiquitous of a tale oh, Snow yeah. White has become. That everybody kind of knows the like, like as white as snow, as black as ebony, as red as the rose or as red as blood. You know, like mm. we we know the the three colors and when they pop up in a story, it already comes preloaded with like all of this cultural meaning in it. But it's it's not innate to the colors themselves. It is very thing specific it is very cultural specific so i have a quote from maria tatar from her book the fairest of them all which i would like to say uh people should go and get and read uh she has a beautiful like introduction essay in the beginning of the book that is absolutely wonderful and then most of the stories that are contained inside of this volume, we have not talked about. We have not retold. It's funny because I had thought when I got this book, like, oh, we're probably going to end up retelling like a bunch of stories that are in this book, which uh -huh. seems kind of cheap, you know, to like buy a book to do this series for research and then just only use the stories from this book. <laughs> but I think that we've only told like three stories from this book and there's like 20 <laughs> and then even the ones that we've retold from the book uh or that are in this book we've used other sources for a fuller text instead mm. of her like retellings of them so i would recommend that people go out and get this book because uh we have in no way uh <laughs> spoil alerted any of this book <laughs> they would <laughs> be tales that you like haven't heard and you haven't heard from us. Uh, but anyway, so the quote inside this book that I wanted to use, it says, it is all the more curious then that we so insistently invest color with stable cultural meaning, turning red into a sign of passion, black into death and white into innocence, as if those connotations were part of the essence of each shade. In other words, we keep inventing meanings for red, white, and black, all the while ignoring the fact that there really can be no consensus on what they mean. The foregrounding of white, red, and black became an important feature of the Grimm's imaginative recreation of what they considered a folktale with deep Germanic roots. Is it any coincidence that the German flag was red, white, and black? until the end of the empire in 1918. Ooh. I am like, dang, girl, mic drop. <laughs> that when we think about, oh, these like these tricolors in this story and oh, are these 
like the Grimm's brothers said, the colors of poetry, the three colors of poetry. And it's like when we think about it and we realize like the Grimm's brothers were trying to create a book of stories that would show what it meant to be German. They were trying to create a national identity for Germany, which was not yet like a fully created and cohesive like country with borders at the time. Like they were trying to say, no, German culture, German people are different from others. And it makes a lot of sense that the colors that they would choose to highlight and romanticize inside of their stories were the three colors that made up their own flag. Mm -hmm. Flags which also will pick colors and give them meaning. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar I appreciate your feedback. We work together better as a team. Mm -hmm. It's hard to work together separately (laughs) as enemies. (laughs) 